Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacadvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. You can find us on Twitter at History underscore Georgia. Sacadvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome to History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed the swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 51, The Lion and the letter cutter. In the 1440s, a goldsmith from Mainz called Johannes Gutenberg developed a movable type printing press which catalyzed the European printing revolution. It heralded a technological leap in communication tools which had far-reaching consequences for the societies of the Low Countries, particularly in urban centers where print shops were established. 
A large market for books already existed in the Low Countries, in no small part because of the existence of common life schools and subsequent high rates of general literacy. Furthermore, with the copying and widespread distribution of text becoming so much quicker and easier, other fields of work began to shift and develop too, as different skills and networks were needed to smoothly bring content to the public. In this episode, we are going to first take a look at what a 15th century printing workshop might have been like before meeting some of the pioneers who would pull the printing presses and perfect the processes pertaining to the profitable publication of pamphlets, prayer books, and other pre-16th century paper-imprinted particularities. If we are going to talk about the earliest decades of book printing in the Low Countries, then we need to have a good idea of what exactly made Gutenberg's press so innovative and revolutionary. Prior to Gutenberg's invention, books in Europe were of the manuscript form, meaning they had been painstakingly created by people, likely being monks or nuns, working in a space called a scriptorium. Some would be copying text by hand, Others would be decorating them lavishly with illuminations. It was a laborious and time-consuming process, which meant that manuscripts were unique. They were valuable and precious objects. It is important to state at the outset that although Gutenberg is often heralded as being the inventor of printing, he was not. He didn't invent movable type. It had definitely been used in China and Korea for hundreds of years before he was born. He didn't invent the press... He probably borrowed from similar screw presses which had been used in the creation of wine and olive oil. He didn't invent printing, which had also been done in Asia centuries earlier and had already made its way to Europe via the textile industry in the medium of woodblock printing. He didn't invent the idea of using printing to make books either. Books being printed from painstakingly carved blocks of wood, known as xylographica, were contemporaneously being created in Western Europe around the same time as he was coming up with his invention. And he didn't invent ink. Cephalopods did that. What Gutenberg achieved, however, was combining versions of all these things in a manner and at a time and a place that was primed to allow for the technology to rapidly spread across the European continent. I guess his maleness, his Europeanness, and his whiteness also probably contributed a little bit to his becoming the perceived great man of print history. With that little set of caveats out of the way, the details of Gutenberg's creation process are hazy as he developed the technology over the span of years, mostly in secret and in opaque business cooperation with different people with whom he would later become nastily embroiled in legal battles. His life is fascinating, and if he was called Gutenberg, there's a chance we'd explore it more deeply. But being the upriver man that he is, what today you might call German, we will concern ourselves only with what became known as the Gutenberg Press and its profound impact on the Low Countries. Now, the press technology is composed of several elements. The first are the types, also called sorts, which are basically little metal blocks with raised backwards letters or symbols sticking out the top of them. To make sorts, the character would first be engraved into the end of a hard metal punch. This would then, as the name suggests, be punched into a thin plate of a softer metal called a matrix, creating an impression of the character. The matrix would be loaded into the bottom of a handheld casting device and liquid metal would be poured into it. 
Gutenberg's experience in smithing led him to developing a tin lead alloy that expanded slightly upon setting, and it did not degrade easily, giving great definition to the end product. Importantly, this alloy cooled rapidly, meaning the matrix could quickly be used again and again to create more identical sorts. The whole process is therefore rapidly replicable, giving the whole operation a proto-industrial feel in its scope for production. To create a text, you need a lot of different sorts, because you need multiple amounts of all the individual letters of the alphabet available to you, plus numbers, spaces, punctuation marks, basically all the traditional little symbols you see on your computer keyboard today. In addition, Gutenberg also created a bunch of ligatures, which are combinations of two letters joined together to make one individual symbol. Examples of this are a double F, or an F and an I, or an F and an L. If these combinations of letters were done individually, there would be weird and ugly spacing issues in the final print. Ligatures make it easier to lay out text neatly, and they also reduce the amount of sorts you need to make to print out an individual page. They also make the printed text look somewhat more like handwriting. It is estimated that around 270 different sorts were used in the creation of Gutenberg's famous 42-line Bibles. The sorts would be arranged in a frame in rows and lines to correspond to whatever text the printer desired to make. The use of these sorts is where the term movable type comes from, since the individual type-bearing blocks, the sorts, could be moved around and reused after printing to form a new arrangement of text. The next part of the process which Gutenberg needed to get right was the ink. Ink has to be adhesive enough with the metal type to stick to it and to remain at a consistent level so the print will be even and also dry quickly. Gutenberg used an oil-based ink, which differed from the commonly used water-based inks that manuscripts and block prints were often made with. It is believed that his compound included lamp black, which is essentially soot, which was mixed into gum arabic and an oil-based concoction of turpentine oil, walnut oil, linseed oil, and crushed cinnabar, which is a hardened mercury sulfide, predominantly red and quartz-like. So the frame with the text would then go onto the press machine face-up in a framed board called the lower platen, and the letters would be covered with this kind of ink. A sheet of paper or vellum, vellum traditionally being calfskin parchment often used for expensive and luxury reading materials, was placed over the typeface and the whole arrangement was slid on a carriageway under a much larger, heavier plate which would be lowered onto it by a screw press, squashing the ink onto the paper. Once lifted, the lower platen can be slid back out, swung open and the freshly printed sheet revealed. Gutenberg did this a few thousand times over a couple of years, and hey presto, he had 180 copies of a Bible, which were completed sometime around 1455 in Mainz, Germany. So having taken a look at the basic mechanics of what Gutenberg's press did, let's dive a bit more into the details of how an early printer's workshop might have actually operated. To do that, we are going to enter the fiction section of this bookshop and try to get a feeling of what one of these operations might have been like during this early period, by which we mean before 1501, since that is the arbitrary date by which book historians have chosen to divide a book history into different chapters. 
There are so many components in this whole procedure that the production of a book requires strict organization, assembling enough skilled workers, each able to adequately perform a specific role and so cooperate in broad collaborative operations. Before we walk through the door and step into this early print shop, it is worth remembering two things. Firstly, later printing operations would occupy large, well-lit workshops for which there would need to be big and many windows. There would be more generally standardized layouts and methods. In these early days, however, printers would have set up where they could and they also varied in how much of the entire process they did themselves on site. So workshops would have looked different. There were still many mistakes to be made and lessons to be learned in this industry, experiences to be gained which would refine the processes over time. The early printers were pioneers in their field, and in the second half of this episode we will look more closely at some of the non-fiction people involved. But they were learning on the go, while also teaching apprentices who would themselves go on to expand the industry. Secondly, The entire process of publishing a printed book, even at this time, required a lot of foresight and organization before any forge, ink, or paper became involved. The early print shops required investment. As for all the composite parts and elements of a Gutenberg press to come together, expensive material and technology was required. We are going to stay away from that logistical side of the operation for now and just look at the practical steps within the print shop. In those early stages of printing, These operations were under the purview of a master printer who had different assistants completing different tasks, all of which had a lot of potential to go wrong or draw mistakes. And we will learn all that as we enter our Imaginarium, as we are an inexperienced farm boy in the market for a job. We hear that a German guy has recently come down river and set up a printing press in the town close to where we grew up. The workshop that we walk into is a professional one, wherein every step of the process is conducted on site. Let's consider the smells and the sounds. Historian of communication, Professor Bill Koverick, says that the predominant smells of a fully functioning print shop would have been grease and urine. The grease would be lathered onto moving parts of the press, the carriageway, the screw and the handle, while the urine would have been for tanning the leather that was used on the inking daubers, which are specialized tools for applying ink to the typeface. For your imagination's sake, daubers look like oversized leather lollipops or balloons on sticks. Whether these very early printers were so sophisticated as to have their own tanning operations going on is hard to say, but this is our Imaginarium, so we will make it smell like piss if we want to. The smells of paper and vellum would also have been noticeable. These are both natural products that degrade while being highly affected by environmental conditions like moisture, letting off a variety of volatile compounds that cause odors. That is why books smell differently depending on their age. The smell of vellum, which are two very satisfying words to put together, varies depending on its environment. Associate Professor of English Holly Duggan whose scholarship concentrates heavily on sensory history in Renaissance-era literature, says of the smell of vellum that it is, quote, distinctive, hard to describe, clinging to my hands after I leave the archive, animalic, not unpleasant, faint, and unsettlingly familiar. It is skin. It's also hard to generalize about the smell of vellum. Each piece has its own unique aroma that denotes both its origins and its history. Its slightly spongy surface, especially on its flesh side, tended to absorb grease from handling it. 
So it was often dusted with pounced chalk, ash, even powdered glass mixed with bread. But we smell it now as an amalgam of provenance, use, and preservation. Its perfume is both animalic and bibliophilic, end quote. Which is a really nice academic way of just saying it smells like old skin. So the varying organic smells of paper and vellum have hit us, and let's not forget the general odour of working humans. Then there is the ink, which you might recall contains a bunch of different oils, including walnut, as well as turpentine, which is made from odorous pine sap. Then there are the sounds. Print shops would not have been super loud, but certainly bustling. The workers on each team depended on each other's efficiency and work rate for a smooth running operation, since each step in the process depended on the person before you having done their work properly. Amidst the sounds of workers chatting, instructions being delivered, or analyses confirmed, you might hear the sound of a punch cutter chiseling or filing a new punch, punctuated by an occasional dull thud of a mallet. The clinking sound of metal hitting metal as type sorts are moved around the place. This workshop has a forge and is casting its own type, so there is the occasional sound of an oven being stoked and bubbling liquid metal. There would also have been the swishing sound of the ink daubers being rubbed together, which would have sounded something like this. This would be followed by an even duller and, dare I say it, wetter rhythmic thud than the punch cutter's mallet as the daubers repetitively and evenly brought ink down upon the type. There would also be the swishing sound of sheets of paper being lifted up and pressed into the pins which hold them in place on the press. The press itself is handmade from wood, which changes shape with the temperature and almost certainly creak and groan with repetitive use and time. Then let's not discount that we will probably also be hearing the odd expletive, or at the very least an exasperated groan from a worker or the printmaster as mistakes are identified, making previous work completely obsolete. So we walk in, we take all of this in and we scan the scene in front of us, a bright room in which sunlit dust motes float through the air and busy workers tend to their tasks. The high likelihood is that they are all men, but it is not at all beyond the realms of possibility that women are also involved. There is evidence of women working in printing around Europe during this period, and by the mid-16th century, this would certainly be the case in the Low Countries. The foreman who commands the workers on behalf of the printer, greets us and begins explaining everything happening in the workshop. Among the high rafters and the tall windows, the large wooden printing press stands dominant, with two workers next to it. One is the puller, who pulls the handle to make the press screw down, and the second is the master printer examining the finished product. He is most likely to have been the person who has done a mountain of prep work up until this point to do with design and layout of the intended book. The original work, which is to be copied and printed, is called, creatively, The Copy. This could be a manuscript or even a previously printed book, which is being reprinted. The length of the text, the amount and the size of paper you have available, how many copies you want to make, the size and quantity of your fount, which is the word for a complete set of types. All of these, plus a bunch of other factors, are all variables which interweave with each other to determine how the words have to be laid out on each page. If you don't figure it all out beforehand, you run the risk of wasting a bunch of expensive paper and ink and ending up with an incomplete book. A nice example of this can be found in the original Gutenberg Bible. It's known as the 42-line Bible because each page featured 42 lines of text. When he first started making it, however, each page had 40 lines, 
but presumably he realized that he was going to run out of paper if he kept to that structure. So by adjusting the line spacing, he was able to fit 42 lines per page. As such, on some of Gutenberg's Bibles, pages 1 to 9 and pages 256 to 265 have 40 lines each. Page 10 has 41 and the rest have 42. Like we said earlier, these early printers were pioneers and they were learning from their mistakes as they went along. So the printer would have counted out lines on the copy and made marks to let the compositor know where one page would have to end and the next would begin. The copy is attached onto a visorium, which is just a fancy name for a clip. This hangs in front of the compositor, who sits at a desk with large wooden compartmentalized boxes in front of him called type cases. Each compartment in the type cases holds all the sorts of one character. The compartments are of varying sizes, since some letters and characters are needed more regularly than others. For example, in the Dutch language, the letter E is used much more regularly than, for example, Z. So you need a lot of E's and a subsequently larger compartment in which to hold them. Of course, this differs from language to language. Like in Polish, would there be any compartments with vowels? You definitely want to have enough sorts to complete the text, because if you run out of them, then you would be all out of sorts. The compositor is holding a composing stick into which the individual type sorts will be loaded. He knows that he can also get the capital letters from the uppercase and the smaller ones from the lowercase. Just going to let that one sit for a moment. The compositors at this stage had to be literate and could freely apply their own preferences and understandings of words, i.e. how they were actually spelled, to their work. Languages were not by any means standardized in the late 15th century and were regionally variant, so how words appeared on print was very much at the compositor's whim. Also, if there were too many words to fit exactly on a page, they might just chuck a few abbreviations in to make it fit. We watched the compositor fill his composing stick with a few lines of text before transferring it into a kind of tray called a galley. We've been taught how to read at a brethren of the common life school, but even so, we don't immediately recognize the text in the galley. Suddenly, we realize that that's because it's upside down and backwards. We decide to be helpful and point out to the compositor, he's made a mistake. He barely pays attention to us as he reaches into the typecase to begin filling his composing stick again. Yes, yes, of course it's backwards, child. That way the print will come out the correct way, he tells us. We blush at our ignorance when a test print or a proof is made from the text that he has just laid out, and we see that it is indeed the right way round on paper. The master printer takes the proof and scans it quickly, you know, a proofread, looking for any errors in the composition. Once he and everyone is content, the text in the galley is then locked into a frame called a form, which holds the type tightly together. The completed form is then placed onto the lower platen of the press and the next person in the workshop takes over. He's holding big leather balls on sticks, one in each hand. We are told that these are called inked bullen or inking balls. He dabs them onto a puddle of ink on the table, then rolls them together until the ink is spread evenly across the top of them. It all looks rather gentle, but then comes the fun part, the beating. He firmly stamps the daubers down across the typeface until the characters are completely covered in ink. This process demands skill and experience to do correctly. If he hits too hard, it might shift the neatly composed types out of place and make it all look bad. 
If he hits too lightly, the typeface might not get covered sufficiently, meaning the print won't transfer properly. On the other hand, if too much ink is used, it might fill the gaps in the letters, resulting in ugly smudged prints which make the text illegible. Once the type has been inked, the paper, which has been slightly and uniformly moistened to help it absorb all of the ink off the typeface, itself a delicate job, is brought up to the press. We watch as a man we'd seen earlier, the puller, carefully positions the paper onto a hinged board on the lower platen by way of frames and pins which hold it in place. If the paper is misaligned, the print will end up skewed to one side. Once it is perfectly in place, the ink beater swings the frame which holds the paper on its hinges into position to sit above the typeface and the entire lower platen is slid under the press. As soon as it's in position, the puller pulls on the handle of the press, causing the upper platen to squish the paper firmly against the ink-covered typeface. After this, the lower platen is slid back out from under the press, the frame is swung open again, and the newly printed paper is removed and hung up to dry. The typeface is re-inked and a new piece of paper is quickly put into position. After repeating this process a few times, they're finished with that particular form and are ready to go on to the next one. Ink residue is cleaned off the type with a chemical called lye and the individual sorts are disassembled from the form. We watch as an apprentice carefully places the sorts back into the correct compartments of a typecase. If they put them in the wrong place, they will slow down the compositor, wasting his and everybody else's time. We notice the apprentice place a piece of type into a compartment and then quickly grab it and place it elsewhere. We hear him muttering to himself, I have to mind my P's and Q's. Now, after all that collaborative work, it's not like everybody gets to go stand around, hold the freshly printed sheet up and admire the achievement. A book is more than just one sheet. Pages are printed in an order that depends on how the sheets of paper will eventually be folded into the final product. If you look closely at the spine of a book, you will see that its pages are composed of sections of many sheets folded and put next to each other. So the pages are not being printed in the correct reading order, but rather so that they can be folded and arranged in the correct order. Someone would have to think about and coordinate all that, and in a big operation in which hundreds of copies of a book are being made, it is easy to imagine how many stacks of paper there are sitting around being arranged. In this print shop of our minds, this is happening on big tables by teams of attentive workers closely communicating with each other and operating by ever more established methods as they gain more and more experience. Having witnessed this busy and confusing work environment, staring at the seemingly endless stacks of paper being fussed over by people who really look like they know what they're doing, we've decided this is not for us. We're going to go and find easier work elsewhere. So we turn our backs on all this parchment and machinery and head off to go meet our non-printing destiny, doing far simpler work, like looking after cows or cutting herring or working as a peat farmer, searching for sphagnum. Speaking of destiny, this podcast is destined for an ad break. On the other side, we will enter the non-fiction section and meet some of the earliest printers of the Low Country. Welcome back. 
So having explored in the first part of this episode how it might have been in one of those early printing operations, we're going to spend the second part of today's episode looking at who some of the earliest printers were in the Low Countries. After Gutenberg commercialized his technology, it rapidly spread out from Mainz as people who had worked with him took the concept and brought it with them elsewhere. As an example, and without going into it too deeply, no man is an island, and Gutenberg worked closely with and had financial support from two guys called Johannes Fust and Peter Schurfer. Remember earlier we said Gutenberg became embroiled in legal disputes? It was with these two. One of their workers was a young man named Ulrich Zell, who at one point left Mainz and went to Cologne to start that city's first ever print shop. Over the next decades, he printed over 200 titles. This seems to have been much the pattern of the time. German-speaking print workers seeing how successful their masters had been and so setting off to replicate them, migrating along already established trade routes to set up shops in new places. In his book chapter titled The Beginning of Printing, historian David McKitterick wrote, quote, Printing and publishing, dependent on capital and on communications, thrived and became established only in towns with good trade connections, end quote. Mines is built at the confluence of the River Mine and the River Rhine. If you set off on a boat in any direction from Mines, you'll come to cities where the first presses were set up. Strasbourg, Cologne and Basel, as well as Bamberg, Nuremberg and further south in Bavaria, Augsburg. Two German men by the name of Konrad Schweinheim, classic name, and Arnold Panart set up the first printing press in Italy at a place called Subiaco, which is where the first... Benedictine Monastery was set up by Benedict. I knew a Ben that had something to do with Subiaco once, but he didn't set up his own orders on how to live as a monk, and he took a lot more meth. (laughs) That one's dedicated to half my family who are West Coast Eagles supporters. In 1469, another German named Johannes de Spira set up the first press in Venice, and that town would become the focal point for Latin language printing throughout the 15th and into the 16th century. And do you know what happens if you get on a boat in Mainz, and you sail towards Cologne, and then you do something radical and you go past Cologne, you'll come to another place filled with people who enjoy dabbling in a bit of commerce and trade. There is much discussion about when and where printing presses were first set up in the Low Countries, since a lot of the early material doesn't have dates printed on them. Or if it does, there's sometimes speculation about how accurate those dates actually are. In the 1560s, so just over 100 years after the advent of the press, a West Frisian humanist called Adrian de Jonge, who wrote under his fancy Latinized name Adrianus Junius, coined a term to describe books which were printed before the year 1501. He named them incunabula, which means cradle or swaddling clothes in Latin, the implication being that these books were created during the infancy of the publishing industry. In Dutch, they are called wichdrukken, meaning the same thing. Although there are some undated incunabula, which some people speculate may have been created in the Netherlands in the 1460s, the oldest known dated incunabulum is a book called Historia Scholastica, which was written by a guy called Petrus Comestor. In this book's colophon, a colophon being an emblem that includes the printing and publishing details, which was sometimes added onto the back of a book, and I say sometimes because remember, like we suggested at the beginning, 
Nobody really knew what they were doing in this infancy stage of printing, so there were no real standard procedures, and even things like title pages hadn't been created yet. Anyway, in this colophon, it says that it was printed by Nicolas Ketelar and Gerardus de Leemt in Utrecht. Also happens to be a town on a branch of the Rhine River, by the way, in 1473. In the same year, in Alst, which is halfway between Brussels and Ghent, a workshop operated by Johannes de Westphalia and Dirk Martens printed Gesta Romanorum, meaning Deeds of the Romans. This was an extremely popular collection of stories compiled probably in the 13th century and meant as a guide for church pastors, which was a pretty popular genre known as pastoralia. Martens had visited Venice in 1470 where he met Westphalia and was introduced to the world of printing. He would go on to have a very long and successful printing career, which spanned 56 years. He became most associated with humanist literature, and in his lifetime, he would print more than 50 books by Erasmus. He also became the first person to publish Utopia by Thomas More, one of the first to publish Christopher Columbus's letters upon his return from Voyages to the Americas, and was also the first person to print in Greek and Hebrew in the Low Countries. His grave in the St. Martinus Kerk in Alst is proudly inscribed with the text, quote, Here lies Derek Martens, the first letter printer in Germany, France, and these low countries, end quote. This is an example of what was happening a lot at this stage. Like Martens, a bunch of people either laid claim to being the inventor of the printing press or had this claim attributed to them by others who had suddenly seen printed works emerging from a cutting-edge workshop for the first time. Some examples of people who have at various points been labelled the inventor of printing include the two guys who were working with Gutenberg, Fust and Schoeffer, as well as the first printer in Strasbourg, Johann Mentelen, one of the earliest printers in Venice, Nicholas Jensen, and a printer from Bruges, Johannes Brito who in 1476 finished a book with the words, quote, printed by Johannes Brito, citizen of Bruges, who invented this wonderful art himself without anyone showing it to him, end quote. If I was going to make up a lie and put it in a book, that's almost verbatim how I would do it. There's another very famous example of a person being attributed as the inventor of the printing press, which we will come back to at the end of this episode. After Utrecht and Alst, it was not long before there were printing operations in Bruges and Lofen as well. The first, or oldest dated, printed sheets came out of Brussels in 1475, Delft, Deventer and Gouda in 1477, Zwolle in 1478, Nijmegen in 1479, Oudenaarde in 1480, Antwerp in 1481, Ghent in 1483, and Sertogen Bosch in 1484. In Deventer, it was Richard Parfreit who first set up shop. He had come from Cologne and was probably taught by Ulrich Zell there. Deventer was already renowned for its book and manuscript production. In a region culturally influenced by modern devotion, the lay devotional creed that had begun around a century before in this same city under the auspices of Gert Grote. Adherence to modern devotion, the so-called brethren and sisters of the common life, set up schools which enabled and encouraged literacy rates to soar. Furthermore, Deventer, along with the nearby cities of the Eisel River, Zutphen, Zwolle and Kampen, had long been linked into the vast continental trade networks established via the Hanseatic League. There were five continental fairs held in Deventer annually, 
That's a lot of fairs. All in all, the towns in this region were richly populated by educated, religiously dedicated commoners who could read. They enjoyed a local culture of learning and book collection and were tapped into nearby social networks and more distant trade networks that went beyond borders. In Daefinder, Puffrate's printing potential was supported from the beginning as he entered a milieu favourable to learning and communication. After a couple of years, he was able to buy the house that he lived in, which he did in 1480, and he got a housemate called Alexander Hegius, who would soon be the principal of Daefinder's Latin school and whom we actually already met in the previous episode of this podcast. If you recall, it was Hegius who learned Greek and Latin from Rudolf Agricola, leading humanists in the Low Countries. Hegius would go on to be a teacher of Erasmus, and not long after, Parfrey married a local woman of means called Steiner Becker, with whom he had at least nine children, one of these becoming Albert Parfrey, who would carry on the business. The legendary late book historian Hendrik D. L. Ferfleet relates the occasion of the 7th of April, 1484, when Parfrey, Steiner, and their housemate Hegius hosted Rudolf Agricola at their house for supper. Apparently, the great and famous humanist brought with him a text known as a panegyric, which is something that heaps praise on someone or something. This particular one was dedicated to the Virgin Mary's mother, St. Anne. Parfrey, wanting to show off his work, rushed off to his printer to knock up 10 copies, and upon returning, excitedly handed them over to Agricola. According to Ferfleet, there were several errors, but the granddaddy of humanism in the Low Countries just had to live with them. One of the most prolific and influential of the early printers in the Low Countries was a man named Gerard Leu, whose career spanned from 1477 until 1492. Not much is known about Leu's early life, but it is believed that he was the son of a miller from Gouda. The first book to be printed by Leu was titled Alle die Epistelen und der Evangelien von den Geheilen Jahre. This is a religious text translated into Dutch, which was first published on Pentecost Eve in 1477. Leo remained in Gouda for seven years, where he is believed to have printed around 69 different books. Nice. Something that made Leo pretty special is that over half of these were printed in the Dutch language. If you compare that to Parfreit, who was printing almost exclusively in Latin in Daefinder, you get an idea of how Leo worked. He was a canny business operator who was able to see where there were gaps in the market and figure out how to use them to improve and innovate his own products and therefore make a nice profit for himself. An example of this was having the groundbreaking idea of printing books which weren't just about Jesus. Shocking. The first non-religious book to be printed in the Netherlands was De Historie van den Groten Koning Alexander, a history of Alexander the Great in the Dutch language. He also printed other books, which we have definitely talked about in previous episodes, such as History of Reinhardt the Fox and the so-called Gouda Chronicle, which is a history of Holland, Zeeland, and Utrecht. One of his most famous books was called the Dialogus Creaturarum Moralisatus, a collection of 122 fables about anthropomorphized animals. Each chapter in the book is illustrated with a woodcut print and ends by imparting a moral lesson. Some of these fables even come from Aesop. Leo printed three editions of this book in Latin, he did two in Dutch and one in French. The use of woodcut illustrations that gave it this magnificent design helped to make the dialogue of creatures moralized, which would be the English title, a bestseller. 
and the woodcuts would later be copied and used by many other printers. Leo was a real trailblazer in the art of printing, not only in what he put onto his presses, but importantly in the way that he made them look. In their essay, Towards a Uniform Written Dutch, historians Anne Marinissen, Daniela Bock, and Amelie Terhalle write, quote, Leo attached great importance to innovation. He worked tirelessly to improving the design of his books. He introduced new typefaces and experimented with new book formats. He added a real title page and alphabet tables to his prints and invested in attractive woodcuts, end quote. Perhaps realizing that Gouda was a bit too far on the periphery compared to the real urban hotspots in the region, in 1484, Leo packed up and moved south. He registered with the St. John's Guild of Printers and Booksellers at Bruges in 1484, but in September of that year, produced his first print from Antwerp. 1484, you'll recall, was right in the midst of the first Flemish revolt against Maximilian, for which the famous old city would be punished heavily. Bruges was on the decline, Antwerp was on the rise, and Leo clearly saw which way the wind was blowing. In the words of historian Kuhn Chaldrian, quote, The fact that Leo correctly assessed this development as early as 1484 speaks to his business acumen, end quote. His time in Antwerp was again prolific, printing over 160 different books, but now he had the benefit of operating in the town, which was becoming the biggest international marketplace on the planet. His chosen content focused more on Latin language works, although still around a third of the works that he printed were in Dutch, while he would also print other books in French and in English. Probably the biggest influence which can be attributed to Leu is in how his work contributed to the de-dialectization of the Dutch language in favor of a variant of Dutch which could be understood more broadly. Remember, this was a time of localized languages across the regions of the Low Countries, where things like rivers, islands, city walls, and political boundaries played a huge role in splintering the way that people spoke. If you were trying to sell books in Dutch to as many people as possible, you would want them to be able to understand what you're putting on the page. Using a localized dialect like Hollandic or Brabantic would prevent you from doing that. Marinissen, Bock, and Tehalla write that when in Antwerp, quote, if Leo worked with a Hollandic typesetter, the Hollandic features were probably consciously removed by Leo's employees in Antwerp during the typesetting process and not or hardly replaced by Brabant dialect forms, but by their supra-regional variants. With the de-dialectization of his language, Gerard Leu was one of the pioneers of the transition from dialectal late Middle Dutch to less regional early New Dutch, which manifested itself in Holland and Brabant prints around 1500. End quote. The consequences of this are huge, as the language that we use plays a key role in our understanding of ourselves and our place in the world. We unite behind how we sound, and with this changing process happening under the advent of printing, more people over a broader scope of land would be able to identify as speaking a uniform or closer language, rather than the older, smaller, and more diverse dialects. As mentioned earlier, another of the ways in which Leo innovated was in his use of different typefaces. There were several different styles of type which were common in these early days, such as black letter, which is that gothic style, almost illegible script you probably associate with old German writing. 
Another common form was Roman, which you are probably used to seeing all around you. Leo realized that by using different fonts in the same book, you can make things look more attractive, and he was not shy of experimenting with such. Leo is thought to have used 12 different fonts throughout his career. Remember how we explained at the beginning that creating a fount of type was a lot of work, and it required specialized skills. To take on this task, Leo employed a letter cutter by the name of Hendrik van Simmen, who is most commonly referred to now by the name Hendrik de Lettersnyder. Hendrik the Letter Cutter. Hendrik de Lettersnyder was probably born in Rotterdam in 1470. By the time he was 19 years old, he had made his way to Antwerp and into the employ of Gerard Leu, where he got busy cutting letters. Throughout their time working together, Lettersnyder provided Leu with five different fonts, all of extremely high quality. One evening in December 1492, while Leu was busy printing an English-language book called The Chronicles of the Lond of England, Letter Snyder informed his boss of his intentions to leave the company and set up his own workshop and go into business for himself. He told Leo he was going to go on strike until he got his way. This clearly upset Leo as an argument erupted. It is unknown what was said and done exactly, but it came to blows and was all punctuated when Hendrik de Lettersnyder picked up a piece of type and in the words of a contemporary account, gave Leo, quote, a little stab in the head, end quote. It can't have been such a little stab though, since two or three days later, Leo succumbed to his injury and died. I guess I put a full stop to the end of that argument. It wasn't an exclamation mark. Either way, Lettersnyder had to pay 40 guilders into the Duke of Burgundy's coffers as punishment for his crime, which, honestly, seems like he got off pretty lightly. The rest of Leo's workers continued on with the job of printing the last book he'd ever worked on, the aforementioned The Chronicles of the Lond of England. It was eventually published in 1493, and they included these words, paying tribute to their fallen master, Gerard Leu. Quote, a man of great wisdom in all manner of cunning which now is come from life unto the death, which is great harm for many a poor man, on whose soul God Almighty for his high grace have mercy. Amen. End quote. So, having got lucky with a very lenient punishment for manslaughter, Letter Snyder got busy doing what he had always intended to do, and he went into the printing business for himself. In 1496, he opened his own print house in Antwerp, and what makes it quite unique is that he seems to have been printing mostly as a means to advertise his letter-cutting skills. A priest-slash-book historian by the name of Bonaventura Krautwagen, fantastic name again, wrote about him in 1923, saying, quote, As a printing house, the establishment was indeed insignificant, but apparently Hendrik did not set it up to practice the book-printing business ex-professo, but rather to print advertising booklets for his typesetting business. What modern type foundries try to achieve by sending their type specimen to their customers, our typecutter tried to achieve the same by printing small booklets, which could also be marketed as independent trade items. End quote. And this worked superbly well for him, since his letters ended up being used extensively across the Low Countries. Between 1493 and 1540, there were about 70 different printers across the Low Countries, of which 43 of them 
used a Textura letter type which was created by Henrik de Lettersnyder. His basic designs were altered over the years to look more French or German depending on the fashions, or vogue, of the time, but nonetheless, they were the standard letters that people all across the Low Countries became familiar with over hundreds of years. Krautwagen went on to say that Lettersnyder was the man who, quote, captured the shape and character of our Gothic Dutch book letters in certain fine drawings, which, without people being aware of it, has been enjoyed by thousands and thousands of readers for centuries and helped to confirm and strengthen the national consciousness, end quote. I'm not sure if that last point quite stacks up a century after it was written, but it is interesting to think about as regards the influence that one man can have when he really dedicates himself to his work and manages to punch more letters than bosses. As we move towards the end of this episode, I want to go back to the foreshadowing I did earlier about one final and famous story of a person being attributed as the inventor of the movable type printing press in the Low Countries. One of the downsides of podcasting is that although the audience can hear me speaking, neither I or Julian can see you staring back at us. We can't see your reactions. If we could, I'm sure that when I said at the beginning that Gutenberg invented the art of printing, some listener in the town of Harlem, North Holland, probably choked on their cheese sandwich and became moderately enraged at this slight on their town's history. If you ever find yourself in Harlem, take a wander into the town's main square, the Grotemarkt, and there you will find a not insignificant statue of a man standing nearby the town's main church, the Grotekerk. This man is proud. He's holding a book to his chest with his left hand, while in his right he holds a piece of type aloft with a letter A sticking out from it. Underneath the statue, in text written in both Latin and Dutch, are the words, quote, Inventor of the art of book printing with movable metal cast letters, Lawrence Janzoon Koster, hero of the Dutch people, end quote. It then includes the year that it was erected, 1856. According to this statue, Lawrence Janzoon Koster actually beat Gutenberg to the punch, pardon the pun, and created a printing press first. This is not just a local folk story, however, but rather something that became so swept up in the tides of history as to be passed off as history itself. How the town of Harlem managed to end up with this claim to being the birthplace of the printing press is traced out neatly in a book titled Lawrence Janzoon Costa was sein Name. Lawrence Janzoon Costa was his name. Written by Lotte Hellinger Corrido and Clemens de Wolf. And we are going to lean pretty heavily on their work for these last few minutes. As they recount, in 1499, a book was printed in Cologne by a guy called Johann Kulof de Jonge, titled Die Chronica von der Hilleke Stadt von Kulen, The Chronicle of the Holy City of Cologne, which was written by an unknown author. In this chronicle, the author claims to have spoken to Ulrich Zell, the printer who had worked with Fust and Schoeffer in Mainz before setting up the printing press in Cologne, who maybe taught Parfait who went to Deventer. In this chronicle, Zell confirms that the printing press was invented in Mainz by Johannes Gutenberg, but he prefaces this by saying, quote, Although the art as it is now common was invented in Mainz, the first precursor was invented in Holland and used for printing Donatuses, which were even printed there earlier. Donatus, by the way, is a very basic Latin grammar book that was used in schools. Continuing with the quote, 
and this is how this art started. And this came to require much more skill and had a more refined result than the first method and demanded more and more craftsmanship, end quote. What method exactly Zell was referring to here is unclear. Perhaps xylographica, those books printed from carvings on wooden blocks? Whatever the case, it is over half a century later before Holland is once again linked to the invention of printing, and this happens in a 1561 edition of Cicero's De Officis, or as it is sometimes called, On Obligations. This was printed in Harlem by Jan van Zuren and Dirk Volkertsen Kornhert. They first dedicate the book to the Mayor's, Magistrates and Council of Harlem before claiming that a primitive form of printing first began in Harlem, but then the technology was taken by a faithless servant who ran off to Mainz and improved it so much that now everybody believes that Mainz was where it all began. They go on to say in this book, quote, However, a truth is no less true when it is only known to a few. And for my part, I certainly believe in the truth of what has been written above because of the credible testimonies of very old, venerable, and mature persons who not only told me family of the inventor lived here locally, but also his first and last name, have often mentioned the primitive way in which printing was done and have pointed the finger at the printer's house, end quote. So having made this claim in this book that Harlem invented printing, it's worth pointing out the irony that prior to setting up their print shop, these two men, Van Zuren and Kornherit, had borrowed a thousand guilders from Harlem's government, interest-free, in order to set up the company. So in the preface of this book by Cicero, which is all about what to do when the honourable and the expedient conflict with each other, they decided to follow the expedient route and bestow a bunch of honour on the town which had bestowed a bunch of cash upon them. But you know, a truth is no less true when it is known only to a few. Regardless, from this point on, the story gathered steam and more details got added to it in subsequent retellings. Perhaps the most famous version is by Hadrianus Junius, that West Frisian humanist scholar we mentioned earlier who came up with the incunabula moniker for super early printed books. Junius was extremely well connected and with support from a guy called William the Silent, don't worry, we'll get to him, in 1566, he was able to get himself appointed as the official historiographer of the States of Holland. The States wanted him to get busy collecting evidence of their rights to convene without the approval of the central government in Brussels, whereas what Junius himself wanted to do was write a sweeping history of Holland in three parts. Who would want to do that? Idiot. When he approached the States five years later, having finished the first of these three parts and asking to be paid for his work, the States of Holland balked. The political situation had drastically changed over those five years, this being right at the beginning of the Dutch Revolt, and they did not want to publish anything which might be misconstrued by the central authority. So Junius was only given a small part of the fee that they owed him, and they told him not to bother finishing his work. So he died in 1575, leaving behind an unprinted manuscript. This manuscript became printed, however, 13 years after his death in 1588 under the title Batavia, and in it, Junius became the first person to actually mention the name Lawrence Gostov. We'll translate the relevant segment into English and quote from it pretty extensively now because, well, why not? You've waited a long time for a new episode and this has already gone way too long, so let's just crack on and do it. Quote, there lived in Harlem 128 years ago in a substantial house on the market close to the castle, Lawrence 
Yanzon, with the surname Costa. This Costa rightly claims the fame of inventing the art of printing, which others have stolen like thieves. By all rights, we should award him the honor of the greatest of all triumphs. One day, Costa was walking in the forest near the town, as is the custom of citizens who have time to spare after meals or on holidays, and he began to cut sticks with letters from beech bark, with which he amused himself by turning them upside down as if they were stamps to be used to print a few lines on paper as a toy for his grandchildren. When this was successfully accomplished, he began to make further plans, for he was resourceful and persistent. Above all, he made a new kind of ink that was sticky and thicker than the ink used by writers, for he noticed that ordinary ink would bleed. He invented this ink together with his son-in-law, Thomas Peter, who had four children, who almost all later held public office. I share this so that everyone will know that the art originated in an honorable and finely cultured family, by no means subordinate to others. He then printed entire blocks of wood with figures and letters. Later, the inventor replaced the wooden letters with lead, and then with tin, which is a stronger and less flexible material which remains usable longer. Wine jugs were cast from what remained of this type material, which, being very old, can still be seen today in Lawrence's house. Since a new invention, as it happens, arouses interest, and new merchandise never seen before attracts buyers from all sides, thus a lot of profit was made. Enthusiasm for the new art grew, and the business expanded. Therefore, servants had to be employed, and herein lay the root of the ruin. One of them, a certain Johannes, with the ominous surname Faust, or so I suspect, was faithless and brought disaster to his master. Or maybe it was a servant by another name. I remain silent about this because I do not want to disturb the peace of the ghosts of those who have passed away, especially when I know that they were tormented by their conscience during their lives. Now this servant, who had been initiated under an oath of secrecy into the art of typecutting, then into that of typesetting, and who had gained experience in typecasting as well as in other aspects of the business, took his chance at a favorable moment that he really couldn't have imagined better, namely Christmas night, when everyone used to gather for the solemn mass. He stole the entire technical equipment of the company, especially the type stock, made a bundle of all the beautiful tools that his master had acquired for this technique, and leaving the house with his loot, he hurried as quickly as he could, first to Amsterdam, then to Cologne, until he finally arrived in Mainz, which sheltered him with impunity as if he were an exile. There he set up a printing house and enjoyed the rich harvest of his thieving work. This is close to what I have heard from dignified and elderly old men who protected this knowledge as a precious commodity, knowledge that was passed down through generations from hand to hand like the flaming torch of an Olympiad. Well, we all know what that sound tells us. We have come to this episode's edition of Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. The idea of having a flame burning at the Olympic Games came from an ancient Greek ceremony where a sacred flame was kept burning at the altar of the sanctuary of Hestia. But the first modern Olympic Games to include a burning flame was the 1928 Olympic Games held in Amsterdam. So there you go, the Olympic flame. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch, and I'm pretty sure you knew that was not the last time that someone set something ablaze in Amsterdam. So if we move back to our pre-Olympic flame musings, the Costa story that came out in this book from Junius after his death 
was discussed at length in a 1628 publication by a Dutch philologist and antiquarian by the name of Petrus Scriverius, called the Loracrons. In this book, Scriverius collates all the evidence he can find to support the claim that Lorenz Janzoon Costa invented the art of printing in Harlem. In her discussion of this, Lotta Hellinger Corrido, whose book we've been using for this, says, quote, However, the evidence itself remains lacking. By modern standards, the argument remains stuck between loyalty to the Harlem tradition and the evidence. The beginning of the modern method, which we think we recognize in the collection of sources, is less strong than the need to recreate history and thereby meet a need that arose due to the new sense of identity of the young republic. A new identity requires a new past. In the past, new heroes had to be found, end quote. Despite the efforts of historians in the century since, zero hard evidence has been found to prove Lawrence Janson Costa actually even existed. There haven't been any prints discovered which bear his name, and Harlem's archives suggest that there were two citizens called Lawrence Janson who lived around this time period, but one never used the surname Costa, and the one who did would have been way too young to be the mythical inventor. Most experts agree now that the story is just that, a story. It's a fiction. But what is not a fiction is the enduring power of the legend, which became perhaps more important than its factual veracity. The Costa story informs us of the value that was put on the art of printing from pretty much as soon as it hit the scene. It would have been an intriguing thing to see someone rock up in your town with some big unfathomable and fancy equipment and then start producing books at a speed that no scriptorium could ever hope to match. People not involved in the industry saw the results of its productivity and there would have been local pride in having a print shop in your town. It is no coincidence that more than a few of those early printers have some version of was the inventor of printing on their graves. The Costa story, over the course of nearly four centuries, has allowed people from Harlem, Holland, and eventually the Netherlands to lay proud claim to something that was so drastically world-altering, regardless of there not being any evidence of it. This was an era of excitable and pioneering collaboration in publishing, so it really is no surprise that confusing myths and counter-stories emerged and were sustained through time. The truth, no matter how many people know it, is that this was just the beginning of what would become a globally influential relationship between book printing and the Low Countries. By the 1520s, Antwerp would be the centre of book printing in Europe, really only challenged by Venice, and... In the 17th century, this incredibly influential industry would shift substantially northwards to Amsterdam. But no spoilers. And anyway, all of that is for future episodes of History of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. We are so happy to have been able to get this episode out for you after spending a lot of last year making Low Countries episodes. Much like creating a typeface, it takes a lot of time and effort to get these episodes done, but we hope it has been worth the wait. If you want to help us make more episodes more quickly, the best way to do this is the crudest way, which is to throw money our way via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands and join the Intercursus Magnus Patreonus, our fair trade agreement. You'll get the episodes ad-free a little bit early, and best of all, you can know that we love you dearly. We would like to thank a few of the people who have made the effort to do that. First up, Jane Fry. 
We're pretty sure that you're the Jane whose Twitter account includes the hashtag back the black caps. So you are therefore a big Kiwi supporter. I like the New Zealand cricket team too. I, I really do. I hope they do really well again this year and make it all the way to the final of the World Cup only to lose against Australia. My favorite Kiwi cricketer is actually Rachin Ravindra, whose first name is a portmanteau of two legendary Indian cricketers, Rahul Dravid and Sachin Tendulkar. So I'm going to give you a nickname based on matching my two favorite cricketers' names. We really appreciate your contribution, Glane. Let you figure that out. If you're not that Jane, you had absolutely no idea what any of that was about. Then we'd like to thank Derek Funderfear. We would suspect that you might be the guy who lives in Amsterdam and yells out at random those damn boat guys' boats telling us to hurry up and make new episodes. If so, it worked. Thank you for your service, Van Paul Revere, with your shouting messages. And then there's Michelle Moreshes. What a fabulous name. This episode's been so full of fantastic names, and yours is one of them. I have actually no idea how to pronounce it correctly, but I'm guessing it sounds like Maracas. So we're going to call you Shaky, Tar Shaky. And then there's Christopher Hochen Dorn. Thanks a lot, Christopher. We actually just Google translated Dorn, which we know is a thorn, but wanted to see what other meanings it might have. Turns out one can have a Dorn in it, oh, a thorn in the eye, like an eyesore. So thanks for the support, you monstrously large blight on the landscape. Actually, we'll just call you Hogs. And occasionally because of that, Jesse. And finally, Rotterdam. Like, damn, who gave themselves their own nickname. A big thanks to you as well, Big Rotter. That's it from us for now. Until next time, doee. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.